through the scriptures now and go to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, in the church Bibles, that's page uh, 976. And in the large print Bible, page 1516. Uh, and this morning we're going to be uh, looking at Matthew chapter 11 and verses 1 uh, through to verse 15. Some of you may uh, remember uh, the year 1976. Uh, I certainly don't, I wasn't born. Uh, but in that year, uh, there was an interview aired on the BBC uh, with the astronomer, uh, the late Patrick Moore. And he told listeners uh, that at precisely uh, 9.47am, the planets Jupiter and Pluto would be in a rare alignment that would briefly diminish the Earth's gravity. He further said that if at that time you leapt into the air, at that exact moment you would experience a fantastic floating sensation. Hundreds of people at 9.48am called up on the BBC to say that they'd felt and had this experience. It was April the 1st. It was a prank. That was certainly, even before the age of fake news, fake news. And in fact, over the years, there's been many uh, incidents uh, on April the 1st of British newspapers and the BBC uh, putting out fake news stories uh, to wind people up. But in this age of fake news, how can we know that the claims that Jesus makes of being God among us to save us from our sins are not just some kind of joke or some kind of uh, fake good news. How do we know that what Jesus is saying is true? It's been a while since we've looked at Matthew's Gospel, but as we come to chapter 11, we've had 10 chapters of Matthew's Gospel where Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the King, as the King who is God. And throughout the Gospel so far, Matthew has been giving us evidence. Evidence to show us that Jesus is God's King. So in a very brief overview of where we've got to in Matthew, in chapter 1 of Matthew, we see the lineage of the King. That this King, Jesus, is one who is born as a King. He is shown in his genealogy to be the son of a King, King David. And he's shown in the virgin birth to be the son of God. In chapter 2 of Matthew, the wise men from the east come from afar to worship Jesus as a newborn king. In chapter 3, John the Baptist comes and he heralds Jesus Christ being the king. And he baptises Jesus where the voice from heaven comes and says, This is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 4, we see that the king is tested in the wilderness as he's tempted. And as he's tested, he passes the tests. He does not sin. Only someone who has never sinned can save us from sin. And Jesus shows that he passes the test. In chapters far, uh, At the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching and healing multitudes of people. 
doing things only God can do. In chapters 5 to 7, we read the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches with the authority of the King. He teaches in such a way that no one has ever heard such teaching before. He teaches about his kingdom and how it is totally different from any other kingdom. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see the authority of Jesus being shown in so many miracles, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, raising the dead. And then in chapter 10, Jesus the king sends out his ambassadors on a mission to declare that God's kingdom is near. That people need to repent, to turn from sin and follow Jesus Christ as king. Matthew's been presenting us for 10 chapters with evidence after evidence after evidence. And if we're in a court of law and all this evidence was presented, we're in the jury and we're being asked the question, how do you respond? What do you think of this evidence? Well, as we come to chapter 11, chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Matthew's Gospel show us responses to Jesus' claims to be king. The responses that people have to Jesus. And there are many responses, ranging from, from doubt, which we'll see this morning, to outright hostility, where in chapter 12 and verse 14, the Pharisees respond by wanting to kill Jesus. But the first response we're going to see is the response of doubt. And we see this in chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. And this doubt comes from a very surprising source. The doubt comes from John the Baptist. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is God's word. Well, we've not seen uh, John the Baptist 
since chapter 3 in Matthew's Gospel. We met some of John's disciples in chapter 9, questioning Jesus about fasting, but John has not been seen since chapter 3. And in chapter 3, John was a man who was preaching powerfully about Jesus coming, about God's kingdom coming. People were being baptised, turning from sin, being pointed towards Jesus. And here, we see John the Baptist, this powerful man, who was a powerful preacher, now doubting Jesus. John had been speaking of Christ to many people who had come for miles to see him. In fact, verse 11 of this passage, Jesus declares that he is the greatest man who has ever lived up to this point. And yet John the Baptist has his doubts. You can see his doubt in verse 3. He says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? He's wondering, are you the, are you the one that I've been proclaiming? Are you the one that is coming to save us from our sins, or should I expect somebody else? It's a huge surprise, I think, as we look at Matthew's Gospel, to see that this man has doubts. And I think that's the first encouragement for us, isn't it? John the Baptist, even he, the greatest man who's lived up to this point, even he has doubts about Jesus. We looked at the subject of doubt at one of our table talks uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and one uh, author, uh, uh, John Stevens, wrote that doubt will be a problem for all of God's people for some of the time, and for some of God's people for much of the time. And this morning, we're going to look at dealing with doubt. And the first point that we need to understand is that the experience of doubt is normal. Even John had doubts. Why did he have doubts? We know what his doubts were. He was wondering, is Jesus the Messiah? That was what his doubt was. But why was he doubting? Well, the text here doesn't really tell us the exact reasons as to why John doubted. But it does give us some clues as to why John was doubting. John had been proclaiming Jesus, now he's wondering, am I right? And the clues as to why he was wondering that are found, I think, in verse 2. First of all, notice where John was. It says, when John who was in prison. John was in prison. And I think the first uh, clue, or the first reason why God's people doubt God's Messiah is because of difficult circumstances. There's a reason why people doubt if, if Jesus is really God's Messiah is because of difficult circumstances. John was in prison. In chapter 3, he was in the wilderness, the wide open spaces, proclaiming God's word, and now he's stuck in prison. It doesn't tell us why here he was in prison. We find that out in chapter 14. Uh, in chapter 14 we read that he had been preaching uh, about the fact that King Herod was wrong to be in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And King Herod did not like this, and so he locked John up in prison. John was in prison for preaching the truth and for serving God. His circumstances were hard and difficult, 
even though he was doing what was right. Difficult circumstances often lead to doubts, don't they? Many of us in our congregation are suffering very difficult circumstances. Many have uh, people have severe physical illnesses, mental health problems, financial issues, the strain of caring for elderly parents or for spouses. There are people who are lonely, people who are grieving. All of those kind of circumstances come to all of us at some point in our lives, don't they? We can't live very long without having difficult circumstances. Sometimes our lives are radically altered and we think not for the better. Sometimes life doesn't turn out how we expect it to turn out. And during these times, we can doubt. We can doubt God's goodness. Why would God allow this to happen to me? He's no good. Why should I follow him, we think? We can doubt God's power. We can say, well, God is good, but surely he's not powerful enough to deal with this if he's not doing anything. So what's the point in following him? We can doubt whether it's even worth following him. What's the point of doing that? We can think like Asaph in Psalm 73. Everyone else seems to be getting on a right, and they're not following Jesus. Why should I bother? Sometimes we get doubts because we're just tired and worn down. Other times they can come because we have unrealistic expectations of what the Christian life should be. We might think, well, Christians shouldn't suffer. Whereas actually Christians suffer just like everyone else and sometimes worse because sometimes we suffer because we follow Jesus. John was in prison. Difficult circumstances can bring doubts. But there's another, perhaps another clue. First of all, difficult circumstances. Secondly, misunderstanding God. Misunderstanding God. John, it says in verse 2, had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So it says, when John, was, who was in prison, had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So it seems to be a link between him hearing about the deeds of the Messiah and him having his doubts. This is probably closer to why he was doubting. He'd heard what Jesus was saying and doing, and it wasn't meeting up with his expectations. And there are two possible ways where uh, the expectations weren't being met. The first of, first of all was the cultural expectations. So the, what, what the, the culture around him thought that the deeds of the Messiah should be. And many commentators would uh, say that at this particular time, the cultural expectations of the Jewish people was that there would be a Messiah that would come and totally destroy the Romans who were occupying Israel. So there was this expectation that he would come, he would destroy Romans, and he would bring in a great kingdom for his people. Well, Jesus didn't destroy the Romans. He did come to destroy something far greater, sin and death, but that was not the cultural expectations of his time. But also, secondly, there was perhaps John's own expectations. John, in chapter 3, had been speaking of Jesus coming in judgment. If you want to flick back to chapter 3, you can, but just to read verse 12, this is what John said about Jesus. He said, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
John was saying Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. He's going to have a winnowing fork and he's going to clear up the threshing floor and, and wipe people out. Well, Jesus had done much blessing, we've seen that, but we haven't seen him doing all that much judging, have we? John was in prison for doing what was right. His enemies seemed to be riding high, and he was there in prison. He, he may have been thinking, well, I wish Jesus would get out the winnowing fork. Why hasn't he done that? He was expecting perhaps less talking about judgment and more fire and brimstone. And misunderstanding Jesus can be a huge cause for doubt for us too, can't it? Like in John's time, misunderstanding can come from our culture and from our preconceived ideas. The cultural expectations of what is right and wrong are very different from what Jesus says, aren't they? We saw in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uh, has a very different view of what constitutes murder and adultery and uh, truth and justice. It's very different from what our culture at that time, but it even uh, so today, believes about those things. We often hear Christians ridiculed in the media for believing the Bible. The expectations of the culture is that the Bible needs to change with the times, whereas the Bible says that the word of God stands forever. And it is ever so hard for Christians when the majority think that what we believe is at best silly and at worst immoral and dangerous. And so we doubt. We can say, well, is what the majority of people saying right? It's hard, isn't it, to go to school or to work or to share these things with loved ones and they, people speak against us. And we, we can doubt. But then there is our own preconceived ideas about what Jesus should be doing. Often we think of Jesus in a way which fits our own agenda, don't we? And then we read of things he does and says, and it can kind of grate on us a little bit. Especially it's true, isn't it, when we think of passages about judgment or about election, where God, uh, we read of God choosing those whom he will be saved. We like to think of Jesus as some kind of big cuddly bear, and then we read of hell and we think, oh, that doesn't quite go along with what... I really want to think about Jesus. I don't like this Jesus. He's not the Jesus I really expect. But the Jesus that is the only Jesus who is real is the Jesus that's found in the Bible, not the Jesus that is in our heads. So John had difficult circumstances, and John perhaps misunderstood Jesus. But thirdly and finally, John perhaps was impatient for God to work. Impatient for God to work. John wanted judgment now, but he was still waiting for it to happen. He wanted God's kingdom to come now, but he was languishing in prison and it still hadn't arrived. And doubt can come when we're waiting, can't it? When we pray and the answers aren't coming. Or when we think about the return of Jesus and we think, well, we've been waiting over 2,000 years is this all made up? Is God even there? And when we're waiting, it can cause us to doubt. Well, all of us will at some point face doubts for some of or all of these reasons. It happened to John the Baptist. It will happen to us. And so the question is, 
When we're faced with these doubts, what should we do? Well, John did something which showed that his doubts were not because he'd lost his faith. Doubting does not mean that we are not Christians. But what John does do is show us what we need to do with our doubts. What he did, he took his doubts to Jesus. He took his doubts to Jesus. Now, he couldn't go himself. He was locked up in prison. So he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus the question, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And in verse 4, we do not read that Jesus rebuked John. We don't read that Jesus said to John, are you stupid man? I thought you were really great, but look at what you're doing and saying. No. Jesus doesn't condemn us when we doubt. Rather, we read two quite simple words at the beginning of verse 4. Jesus replied. Jesus replied. John takes his doubts to Jesus, and Jesus answers his doubts. And what we see as Jesus does this is that the answer to doubts is Jesus. The experience of doubt is normal, but the answer to doubts is Jesus. And Jesus answers John in verses 4 and 5 with a, a summary of what he says and does. He says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What the disciples hear and see are what we have heard and seen, as we've read in chapters 8 and 9, of all those things Jesus has done. And on one level, what Jesus does here is he shows us that what he says and does are what only God can say and do. Who else can open the eyes of the blind? Who else can raise the dead? And so on. Who else can teach the way that Jesus does? And they're not one-offs. The verbs here in those verses, receive and walk, are cleansed, hear, are raised, proclaimed, are all words that are in a tense that's continual. That is, I'm, this, is go, this hasn't just some, wasn't something that's happened in the past. I'm still doing this now. This is continuing. You're seeing this. This isn't a one-off event. Many eyes are being opened. Many ears are being unstopped. People are being raised from the dead and healed. It's going on. But at a deeper level, Jesus here is speaking in Old Testament language, which I think is a real benefit for John in prison. He especially echoes Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, These words that appear on the screen. This is a prophecy about the Messiah coming. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Those passages speak of what will happen when Messiah comes. And in the Old Testament, nobody received sight. Nobody had their hearing restored. Only the Messiah was able to do those things. And Jesus does more than what those passages say. He raises the dead, he cleanses the lepers. But importantly for John, those passages in Isaiah also later on speak of judgment that's coming. It's as if Jesus is saying to John, John, 
I am the Messiah. I am doing all of these things, all of these blessings that I've told you will happen. Judgment will come, but it's coming in my time, not your time. Is Jesus the Messiah? The disciples asked. And Jesus answers John with an unequivocal, yes. Yes, I am. Look at what I'm doing. Listen to what I'm saying. Yes, yes, yes. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come. And then Jesus gives a warning to John. There's an encouragement in verses 4 and 5, and there's a warning in verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. To stumble means to, to take offense at or, be, or, or to misunderstand. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, don't allow your preconceived ideas about me to cause you to stumble when you see what I'm actually like. Don't allow your, what you would prefer perhaps Jesus to be to cause you to stumble and turn away from who Jesus actually is. He says you are blessed if you trust in the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible is enough. The Bible is, is, is not a book of myths or of fairy tales. It is an accurate record of what took place, of what people heard and what people saw. And the Jesus of the Bible is shown to be a king who we can trust and in whom we must follow. John's doubts were answered by telling him to look at Jesus and then look at the scriptures that John had in the Old Testament and not be clouded by his own preconceived ideas. And the same is true for us. And so we therefore must be in our Bibles. We must be engaging with Jesus. We must be reading of him, seeing what he has said, seeing what he has done and thinking it through and seeing the Jesus of the Bible. Because if we don't know Jesus, and we're not in our Bibles, we will start to doubt. Because all the voices that we're going to hear will be from everywhere else. Uh, the preacher C.H. Uh, Spurgeon famously once said to his congregation that some of you have enough dust on your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. And the reason for that is because if we're not in our Bibles, engaging with Jesus, we will, we will doubt, we will not understand, and we can fall away. But there's more. In verse 7, John's disciples go back to John. And no doubt, by the way, they encouraged John with these words, because we don't read that John did fall away. But when John's disciples go back, Jesus turns to the crowd in verse 7 and begins to speak to them about John. And what we see then is a testimony about John which speaks of the greatness of this man. Now there's an element, no doubt, here of Jesus defending his cousin. Perhaps the crowd were thinking, well, <laughs> John's doubted. Perhaps he's not so great after all. And Jesus starts to defend him. Look at verse 7. John's, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? So the wilderness was where John was in chapter 3, and people flocked to go. What did you go to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Well, in, in the wilderness, there were reeds, and they would have been swayed when it was windy. But, this is a, 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 a colloquial saying of the time, uh, someone that was 
uh, swayed uh, like a reed in the wind was a people pleaser. That when the wind blows, they change direction whichever way the wind goes. So he's saying, was John a, a people pleaser? Well, of course John wasn't a people pleaser. He was in prison for saying what someone very powerful did not want to hear. He was fearless in this regard. John wasn't doubting because he was a people pleaser. So verse 8, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Well, no. John Was John materialistic? Did they go out to see a, a fashion parade? Someone that loved to wear fine clothes? Well, of course not. John was a man who wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. He was anything but materialistic. John was not a people pleaser. He wasn't a rich man. He was something else entirely. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. A prophet is someone who has a special revelation from God that they speak out to people. Sometimes that is foretelling the future, but oftentimes it is foretelling, that is speaking a word of God to his people in the present time. John the Baptist was a prophet. He had special revelation from God and foretold Jesus coming and foretold how people ought to respond to Jesus coming. John was a man who pointed to Jesus and said, this is the one who was to come. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus said John was more than a prophet. Well, why was John more than a prophet? Well, John was more than a prophet because he was a, both a speaker of prophecy, so he spoke, God's word, but John was also the subject of prophecy. He spoke prophecy and was the subject of prophecy. In the Old Testament, many prophets spoke. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the, the minor prophets. But none of those had prophecies about themselves. But John was spoken about by the prophets. And that's why Jesus quotes in verse 10, Malachi, an Old Testament prophet, chapter 3 and verse 1, where Malachi prophesies that a messenger is coming who will prepare the way for God to come. John was that messenger. He was prophesied about, the speaker and the subject of prophecy. And Jesus tells us in verse 11 that, that John is, is, is more than a prophet, but also he's the greatest person who's ever lived up to that point. Greater than all of the Old Testament characters that have preceded him. That's some defense, isn't it, of John. The crowd are told in no uncertain terms, he is not doubting because he is a failure. This man is the greatest man who's lived up to this time. But there's more to Jesus' defense of John then merely, he's not all that bad. There's a great surprise in verse 11. Do you notice it? Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater than John. Jesus builds up the greatness of John, not only to defend him, but to show us the greatness of being part of God's kingdom. And the greatness, therefore, of God's King Jesus. 
How is it that the least in God's kingdom, in other words, the, the lowest Christian that there can possibly be, can be greater than the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets? Well, the greatness here is not in terms of our character, but in terms of our knowledge and understanding. Our greatness here is not because of character, but because of knowledge and understanding. John was the greatest prophet because unlike the ones before him, he didn't just speak about Jesus coming, he pointed at Jesus physically himself and said, there he is. And so John's understanding and knowledge of Jesus was greater than all the ones before him because Jesus was standing right there in front of him. John baptised Jesus and heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son. So John was greater than all the ones before him. But John was still pointing to something that was coming. He preached that the kingdom of God was near, never that it had arrived. And, but the kingdom of God has come when Jesus has died on the cross, has risen from the dead, has ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit upon the citizens of his kingdom. John didn't see this. John didn't understand this. The disciples, until it happened, didn't understand this. But those who are part of God's kingdom do understand. The least in God's kingdom has to, at the very least, understand who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, that he has died on the cross, that he has risen from the dead, that he is returning to judge. The, the, that's the, the basics of Christianity that we all need to understand if we're going to call ourselves Christians. If you don't believe in any of those things, you're not a believer. And Jesus is saying, because we understand what Jesus has done, we have more uh, greatness in that regard than even John the Baptist. As great as Jesus says John is, he did not have the revelation we have. And so the, even uh, the greatest of us have doubts, but here's the key point. We have even more evidence than John did. Because we, in our doubts, can look not just that Jesus has done these deeds that John saw, but we can look at an empty tomb and see a saviour who has risen from the dead. And that changes everything. Easter makes the reality of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really came to do clearer for everybody. The Roman centurion who saw Jesus die on the cross, what did he say? Surely this is the Son of God. That's what he said, wasn't it? He understood when he saw Jesus die. Well, John never saw that. He was beheaded before that happened. But we see the empty tomb. And so we don't need to doubt because we can look at that evidence and we can say, but he's risen from the dead and it changes everything. We all will doubt. It's normal for us. But the answer to those doubts is Jesus. Look at him. Look again with fresh eyes at the life of Christ. Read the Gospels. See who he says he is. See what he has done. And look at the cross and the empty tomb and realise that this is God's Messiah. But we can have all the evidence in the world, but we still need to believe it, don't we? Although Jesus is the answer to our doubts, 
Finally, the response to doubts is still faith. We can have all the answers, but we still live by faith and not by sight. We have to trust that the answers are true. And the response to Jesus is to follow him with our whole lives, to put our faith in him. Now there are two phrases that Jesus uses here that show us that we need to have faith in our doubts. And they're found in verses 14 and 15. Just notice with me there, two phrases Jesus says. In verse 14, if you are willing to accept this, so there's faith there, isn't it? We've got to be willing to accept what he says. And in verse 15, whoever has ears, let them hear. He's not just talking about people, you know, non-Christians have ears too, right? He's not talking about people that don't have ears. He's talking about how we listen. We've got to listen in, in such a way that we're believing what Jesus is saying. We need faith in Jesus to know that these things are true. And we need faith because living in God's kingdom is tough. Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Now, if you've got uh, an NIV Bible, uh, you may notice, or you, hopefully you'll be able to notice, if you look at there, that there is a footnote attached to the verse, uh, verse 12, which says that the first part of this verse could mean being forcefully advancing. Hopefully you can see that. The, that basically what it means is the translators are unsure about what the correct translation is from the original Greek. Now I mention this because looking at the context here, I would say that this second meaning is true. That the verse is saying that the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing but has been subject to violence since john has been preaching until the time jesus had arrived and was speaking god's kingdom had been moving forward many flocked to hear what john had to say many flocked to hear jesus many had been baptized and repented of sin it had been advancing but at the same time john was in prison Jesus had been attacked and would be arrested and crucified. Most of the disciples would end up dying for their faith. The kingdom was under attack. It was both advancing and it was being attacked. Why is it that there was this upsurge in both the kingdom advancing and the kingdom being attacked? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 13 and 14. He says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Jesus is saying up until John, Jesus was only prophesied about. He was talked about, he was going to come. Jesus was coming. But John was the last prophet. He was the Elijah to come. That links back to Malachi, where Malachi prophesied there would be an Elijah would come and he would prepare the way for the Lord to come. And Jesus is saying, John was that Elijah that was prophesied about. He has come, he's prepared the way, now I've arrived. And now I've arrived, the kingdom of God is going to advance, and it's going to come under attack. Because Jesus is here. That means that being part of God's kingdom is going to be difficult. There are going to be times where it's hard. There's going to be times where it comes under attack. And in order to keep going in God's kingdom, 
And in order to enter God's kingdom in the first place, we need faith. Because we will doubt. Doubts come, Jesus is the answer, but we have to be willing to accept what he says and hear it not just with the organ of the ear, but with the ear of our hearts. The response to doubt is faith. Now, when you're talking to people about Christianity and they, they don't believe, often they'll say, yeah, but you just have to have faith, as if faith is something that nobody else has. But here's an important truth to remember when you're wondering, well, is it true I've just got to have faith? Everybody has faith in something. Everybody has faith in something. And there's two areas in uh, particular where everybody has faith. I mean, everyone has faith in lots of things, but two areas in particular is one, where have I come from? And two, where am I going? The atheist has faith in both those areas. In terms of where am I going, life after death, there is no evidence whatsoever that there is no soul and that this is all there is. There's no evidence for that. And so they have to have faith that there is nothing. In terms of where have I come from, it takes a great deal of faith for the atheist to believe that everything has come from nothing. And other religions have faith, don't they, in these areas, but the problem is that their founders are dead, and so they can't provide us with much to believe about life after death. And so we come to Jesus. Jesus Christ, who we see in the Gospels, in this historical record of evidence of what Jesus said and did, we see him creating uh, bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, who we see speaking to the storm to stop and be still, and with his word, nature obeys. And who we see, yes, die, but overcome death and rise again. Everyone has faith in something for where they have come from and where they're going. People put faith in nothing. People put faith in religious leaders. But I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ, the God who created all things and who has risen from the dead. Whatever, uh, we, wherever we are in our Christian lives, doubts will be a problem at some point. For all of God's people, some of the time, for some of God's people, much of the time. But look at Jesus. Look at the empty tomb. Look at how he is risen from the dead. And then you weigh up faith in a saviour who has died and risen and ascended to heaven and changed the lives of countless millions of people over history and who has uh, changed nations who have followed his word throughout history, you look at, at that and you compare that with anything else and you, how can you compare? Because he's risen from the dead. We will doubt, but let's take our doubts to Jesus. Let's tell him of our doubts. Let's open up our Bibles, let's see what he has to say, and let's have faith in a God who has sent his son, who has died for our sins, who has risen from the dead and given us his spirit. Let's live our lives in such a way that we are willing to listen and have ears to hear. 
Well, before we come to the Lord's table, where again uh, we are presented at the Lord's table with uh, reasons not to doubt, the bread and the cup are reminders of what God has done. Uh, we're going to uh, stand and sing of the resurrection of Jesus, of the empty tomb where our faith is based. Uh, we're going to sing, Thine be the glory. Uh, in that uh, song, we uh, uh, sing the words, No more we doubt thee, glorious Prince of Life. Life is not without thee, aid us in our strife. We're going to stand and sing that. Uh, and then after we've sung, uh, we're going to come and remember the Lord's death around the Lord's table. So let's stand and let's sing.